The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. In looking for tapes, you never know what's going to turn up because the vault is massive. And you just don't know whether tapes survived. One day, a couple of years ago, I got a call from my old friend, Harry. I'm Harry Wanger. I'm a vice president of A&R for the Catalog Group within Universal Music. Harry's the guy who gets to dig into old master tapes and unreleased material that's all housed in the Universal Vault. At the time, Harry was working on a reissue of some of Sylvester's early music, recorded for a label called Blue Thumb Records. He got a call from someone working in the vault. They'd found some multi-track tapes that he didn't recognize. Hey, there are these two-inch reels that have songs that are not on the album. Okay, send me those. So we'd start listening and going, it's not quite the same as the album feel. It's not the same band. And there's a note that says, A&M, Jan Wenner. And then there's a date, March 16th, 1971. Holy shit, these are demos. This is an origin story. Like that thing that we've all embraced, that people dance to all over the world, this is the birth of it. Oh my God, it's right there. I'm Jason King. This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. This season, we're looking at the gender-bending, ahead-of-his-time queen of disco, Sylvester. This is episode two, Warming Up the Hot Band. And the story of how those demos happened? It starts with a record producer, musician, and writer named Ben Sidron. I got a phone call from Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone. I was a friend of Jan's, and he was very excited about Sylvester as an artist. Ben had been doing sessions with Eric Clapton, Peter Frampton, and the Rolling Stones. He co-wrote the hit Space Cowboy with Steve Miller, so Ben was a pro. His friend Jan Wenner was the founder of Rolling Stone magazine. Jan had seen Sylvester with a hippie drag performance troupe called the Coquettes. Jan knew there was something there. Everybody's going to see the Coquettes. It was pretty razzle-dazzle. It was a lot of fun. It was a kind of very chic thing to do. I, I don't think I'd ever seen a drag show before. They all came out in kind of outrageous funny costumes like they were Carmen Miranda or whatever and did a musical. No doubt the Coquettes were radical. But by 1971, they felt like a product of the 60s. Sylvester, on the other hand, had a soaring gospel falsetto and a gender-bending look. He felt like something that hadn't happened yet. Sylvester kind of stood out as a singer and somehow ended up taking Sylvester into the recording studio and recording about four or five songs. This was a few months before the Coquettes' disastrous trip to New York, where they had a big public meltdown that was basically the end for them. But Sylvester already knew he wanted to go out on his own. And Jan Wenner didn't just publish a music magazine. He'd produced Boz Skagg's debut album in 1969. His phone call could open doors. 
And so it was a big deal when he went to A&M Records with a pitch about Sylvester, got some money together to record a demo, and brought in Ben Sidron to produce. Sylvester was, depending on how he presented that day, he was a good-looking guy, he was a gorgeous woman. He was, uh, frankly, a different kind of musician than I had ever worked with, and it was as new for me, I suppose, as it was for him to be in a recording studio. We had this odd collection of songs that didn't really have a thread to them. And Superstar, that was my favorite thing on that session. Superstar is a song about a lonely, heartsick rock and roll groupie. It was first performed by Delaney and Bonnie, who wrote the song with Tulsa sound legend Leon Russell. But it became a top 10 hit in 1971 for the Carpenters. So, at first glance, a pretty strange choice for the fabulous Sylvester. But over the years, lots of R&B artists have gravitated to Superstar. Luther Vandross recorded an epic cover of it in the 80s, and so did American Idol winner Ruben Studdard in 2004. What did R&B vocalists love so much about Superstar? Well, there's the brimming drama of the lyric, the wide-open melody that gives rangy singers a chance to flex. And they heard all the melancholy and darkness just below the surface. But there's also another reason Luther Vandross may have gravitated to the song. He was in the closet for the duration of his career. Queer and gay people have long seen themselves reflected in this sentimental hit, with its tale of an outcast woe. My friend Harry at Universal knows all about my Sylvester obsession, so he very discreetly sent me a link. You know, at this moment, Jason, you and I are the only people who've heard these demos. Well, after 50 years, it's not just me and Harry anymore. Here is the lost demo of Sylvester singing Superstar from March The demo session was Sylvester's first time recording in a professional studio. He arrived in an evening gown with a plunging neckline. And an entourage, because that's what stars do. Even Ben Sidron was impressed. They didn't just dress in drag, they dressed in spectacular drag. They weren't your everyday, ordinary-looking folks. They were gorgeous. The whole vibe in the room was so exotic. If you can imagine a small control room that could normally seat three people with up to seven or eight people in it, uh, all getting high and partying, not really focused on 
making a record <laughs> as such. Jan Wenner. You know, he just was so excited about making a record, being in a studio, and he sang with no restraint. He blew a voice out the end. The real thing with a falsetto voice is if there's any nervousness or tension in the throat, it goes out of pitch. There were times when we'd be sitting around the studio, he was a nice gospel piano player, and he would sing something in his baritone voice, and I kept suggesting, why don't we try something in that range? But he absolutely uh, refused because that was not the fabulous character. He insisted on presenting as the fabulous Sylvester. If Ben Sidron had known Sylvester better, this would have been obvious. He was either going to be the fabulous Sylvester or nothing at all. Even with Jan Wenner's support, the demos didn't land Sylvester a deal with A&M Records. But maybe he wasn't ready. I'd just come out of my jazz period where I used to sing jazz in San Francisco for a long time, for years. And the hot band was sort of put together because the music was changing, I was changing. Sylvester began putting together a band of his own. And naturally, he had a concept. Seeing as he was a queer black man in drag, he decided his band would be the opposite. Long-haired, straight white boys who he could dress up in glittering glam rock costumes. They have to be hot, Sylvester said. They'd be called his hot band. Around this same time, a singer named Anita Pointer got a phone call. We were needing work and someone called and said, we want you to go sing with Sylvester. And I said, who's Sylvester? In 1971, no one had heard of the Pointer Sisters. It would be about a decade until their commercial peak, when they had top ten singles like Fire, Slow Hand, and I'm So Excited. Back then, they were just singing in bars to make rent. But work is work, so the sisters made the trek out to the rehearsal studio. So it was another little funky place in San Francisco. But I remember just being amazed at how hard and how high and how strong he sang. I mean, his voice was so powerful. He wanted us to sing above him. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, how can I sing that? I thought the top of my head was going to blow off. The Pointer sisters were already dressing in vintage 1940s thrift store style, but Sylvester glammed them up. He would go to his closet and get his little sequence tops and little hats with fuzzy stuff on them and just have us all decked out in his clothes. Sylvester and the band, with the Pointer Sisters on backup vocals, started gigging around the small rock clubs of San Francisco. The band was going for a raw, blues rock vibe. You wouldn't expect to hear a falsetto voice like Sylvester singing over that gritty sound, but many black men in R&B and gospel music sing in falsetto without batting an eyelash. You hear it a lot in the black church. You hear it in doo-wop music and Motown. There's Smokey Robinson, there's Eddie Kendricks of The Temptations. Think about Little Richard's famous ooh yelp on Tutti Frutti. Don't forget Curtis Mayfield and Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind and Fire. All the way up to singers like Maxwell and D'Angelo and Frank Ocean today. So in working with the hot band, Sylvester was applying his black church sensibility to a modern blues rock sound.
Growing up, Sylvester was a member of the Palm Lane Church of God in Christ, a Pentecostal church in South Central LA. Church member Drita Slaughter talked about how service would start. Everybody at the church had to get up and tell something. And one of them might get filled the spirit, then you get to shouting. So you're gonna shout, and you're gonna testify, and then you're gonna sing. Thank you, sir. Drita remembers how a very young Sylvester tried to join in. Back then, everyone called him Dooney. Dooney would be right there in the church, trying to play the piano. Couldn't play, but he was bamming on it. They put Sylvester on a milk crate so people could see him sing. After that, Sylvester's mother would take him around to other congregations so he could perform, like a little star of their local church circuit. Sylvester had twin sisters, Bernadine, and also Bernadette, who remembered how Sylvester and his mother connected through music. He and my mother were singing, and they would be on both sides of the piano playing something and singing a gospel song or a Dinah Ross song or Barbara Streisand. I think I know every word to every Barbara Streisand song. I was always a gifted child. That's what my mother says. And I think my whole persona as far as my career is gone is basically built on fantasies. Sylvester grew up in Watts in South Central Los Angeles. By the late 1950s, the neighborhood was 95% black, economically depressed, and plagued by police brutality. I knew there was someplace else other than my neighborhood, but I didn't know how to get there. And I would read these books and watch TV and they would talk about princesses and, and kings and queens and exotic places. And I would always say to myself, this is what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to live that life. Sylvester would watch his mother and his sisters getting ready for church, extravagantly dressed and made up with big hats. He wanted to be in those outfits, not the little suits his mother Letha Heard dressed him in. Years later, when Sylvester was a big star appearing on Joan Rivers' talk show, he spoke about the message he got from his family. When I was little, I used to dress up, right? Yeah, okay. And my mother said, you can't dress up, you can't dress up, you gotta wear these pants and these shoes, and you have to, like, drink beer and play football. And, and I said, no, I don't. And she said, you're very strange. And I said, that's okay, you know. You were and, odd. Well, yeah. You were odd. <laughs> In the black church, gay men, even flamboyant and flaming ones, have often found themselves in key roles, in a kind of open secret. This is especially true in the choir. As long as they don't talk about their sexual orientation, they can be accepted by straight church members. When Sylvester was in his early teens, and in people's memories of this vary, putting him somewhere between 11 and 13, he complained about pain, and Letha took him to the family doctor. After the exam, the doctor told her that Sylvester was sexually active. Here's how Sylvester explained it to his sister, Bernadette. Well, I was traveling in the church and there was a guy in the choir that he, he said turned me out. It's hard to look at Sylvester's sexual relationship with an adult in the choir as anything other than abuse. But Sylvester's own feelings about it were complicated. Filmmaker Stephen Winter. I know he contextualized it to some friends as being abuse but he also contextualized it to other people or at other times as being a glorious thing. But one thing we can understand is that he grew up really fast. 
his youth was usurped because he moved in a crowd of older men. He started what we call flaming. Years later, Sylvester spoke about it with Bishop Yvette Flunder. He, he said to me one day, he said, you know, one of the things that really blew my mind is that the same people that turned me out turned me out. The people who turned him out turned him out, meaning that it was the same men who had sex with him who made him feel ostracized for being gay. The church stopped turning a blind eye to his flamboyant manner, and he was made to feel unwelcome. He was invited out, in essence, in the ways in which church folks can invite you out. You know what I mean? I think that he had two things running in him. One was an anger at the way that he was handled in the church, and the other was almost like a sense of guilt. How does this work with God? Because he, he loved God. And I know that. Just as he lost the community that meant so much to him, things started getting worse at home. I left home when I was 13 because my mother said to me in one of our little fights and arguments that if I didn't like what was going on in her house, to leave. So I said, thank you, because I've been waiting for this for years. Stephen Winter. In order for Sylvester to do what he needed to do and be who he was, he had to leave home. And in order to preserve his relationship with his mother, Letha, he had to leave home. In his typical way, Sylvester later told this story like it was a moment of liberation, no matter how hard it must have been at the time. I had friends. I would go stay with my friends or bum around here and bum around there. And I ended up in Hollywood being a hippie. I had no problems at all, you know. I was also meeting fabulous people. Like the discotheques, the drag party scene he ran with in the mid-1960s. Then the coquettes in San Francisco, where he first got to perform as a singer in front of a crowd that loved him. Then Jan Wenner, then the Pointer Sisters, and now the hot band. Sylvester was looking for something that felt like it fit. People who would, unlike the church community, accept him with no compromises. I think maybe because I'm honest with my sexuality, I'm honest about who I am. Uh, I have no problems. I'm not hiding anything from anyone. If anyone wants to know anything, all they have to do is ask. And that's on them and not on me. In 1972, Sylvester and his hot band were invited to record two tracks for a compilation of San Francisco artists organized by a local radio station. One of the songs was an original Sylvester wrote called Why Was I Born? It's a simmering gospel smoker that starts in half-time drag tempo, then picks up into a four-on-the-floor gospel stomp. The Pointer Sisters' churchy harmonies tingle your spine, wash over you, and anoint you.
Blue Thumb Records, the label who had released the compilation, was a strange and spirited place run by a man named Bob Krasnow. Here's producer Ben Sidron. Krasnow was a legendary and an infamous character in the record business. He started out being a promotion man for James Brown and started this label, Blue Thumb. Krasnow, at the time, dressed in fringed leather. He had this huge Jufro. He was totally outrageous. Bob Krasnow had unique taste, and it drove everything at Blue Thumb. What I remember most about Blue Thumb in those days, 71, 72, is that they said yes. If you had a creative idea, if you wanted to do something, and they, you know, believed in you, they said yes. Go do it. Just go do it. He purposely wanted to do things that the big labels weren't doing. So, for example, Captain Beefheart was on Blue Thumb, and he put out spoken word records. Sylvester had gotten Bob Krasnow's attention with his songs on the album Lights Out San Francisco. But if this was going to happen for him, he realized he needed to up his game. He auditioned musicians from L.A., hiring four rock and R&B players. This was a hot band. But Sylvester and these guys were from different worlds. They were totally straight, professional players. For producer Ben Sidron, this contrast was no accident. I had the sense that that was absolutely a choice which made his outrageousness even more outrageous. Stephen Winter. It's an act of queering the culture. Because when you look at the pictures of the hot band and you see these scraggly white boys, you got to understand, in certain parts of society of that era, that was the height of heterosexual masculinity. And Sylvester putting herself, himself, themself, in the center of them is a hilarious in-joke. With his glammed-up, long-haired white guys, Sylvester and the new hot band started working up an eclectic set of covers, like James Taylor's Fire and Rain alongside Wilson Pickett songs. Strangely, it worked. They opened for Stevie Wonder at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go in L.A., where Sylvester had been hanging out just a couple of years earlier, just another wannabe star. Me being so wild and everything, uh, I was touring with a white band, and which was my band, and I was very into rock and roll at the time. So because of my gospel and jazz training, singing against hardcore rock and roll was different. And that made people listen because it was different. Bob Krasnow at Blue Thumb Records thought so too. And in early 1973, the label signed Sylvester and the Hot Band to a record deal. For Sylvester, who'd been cultivating his diva star persona basically forever, this was a prime opportunity for a grand gesture. Michael Lyons, Sylvester's boyfriend at the time, went with him to sign the record contract. They took a limo, and then they went shopping. The limo following along as they walked from store to store, spending $60,000 in just two hours. Sylvester had his eye on a VW Beetle with a Rolls-Royce grill, and he wasted no time. He went straight to the dealership, the money from his record deal burning a hole in his hot pants. But the money was actually in advance, meant for things like, you know, paying the band. Living large like a superstar at this stage of your career? It's not a great strategy. But for now, they were having fun and opening for some pretty high-profile acts. The idea of Sylvester opening for Bowie is just a natural. That's a, a million-dollar idea. In retrospect, Ben Sidron is spot on. The hot band were going for glam. And in 1972, there was no bigger glam rock star than David Bowie. Opening for Bowie at rock impresario Bill Graham's Winterland was Sylvester and the hot band's biggest gig yet. 
Sylvester's friend, artist Gilbert Baker. Winterland was the Bill Graham rock show place in the 70s. He wanted to play Winterland because that's where the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, and Santana, all the big acts would play there. They finally booked him. I think he was third on the bill. The show was Halloween 1972. Sylvester was the first of two openers. Dan Cuny was a 16-year-old David Bowie fan. He had never heard of Sylvester. We'd get to the arena eight or nine o'clock in the morning. We'd put out our blankets. We'd be first in line. But Dan probably could have slept in that morning. There wasn't a huge crowd to fight through. We were kind of amazed at how low it was attended. I mean, there were basically a couple hundred people there for the whole show. So imagine, Sylvester and the hot band come out. They're the first of three. There's lots of blank space in the crowd, but they play like they're the headliners. Dan remembers Sylvester just owning the stage. And then, toward the end of their set, Sylvester, in 12-foot sequin-covered butterfly wings, starts to fly. I had never seen anything like that. Since we were in the front row, he did go out, I want to say, 10 to 12 feet out over the audience. Sylvester had hired a stage technician who had rigged a production of Peter Pan. And it didn't go exactly as planned. Hot band bassist Kerry Hatch. They blew him out on wires. They didn't have much rehearsal. Sylvester was obviously a big guy. He's over six feet. He's, you know, probably, you know, 200 pounds. And, uh, you know, he's got the glitter wings and the whole thing. And everybody down below is just screaming and yelling. And he didn't make the stage on the return. He was literally suspended with a bunch of guys holding the ropes. And they lowered him down into the crowd. And the next thing we saw was him, you know, coming backstage, looking like he'd just been in a car wreck. I mean, his glitter wings were ripped to shreds. His makeup was smeared. I mean, they had just mauled him. Bowie didn't even sell out his two-night stand at Winterland. And having seen his opening act with sequined wings and a spectacular, although maybe not fully worked out, stage act, he told the local press, they don't need me, they've got Sylvester. In the fall of 72, the hot band went into the studio to make their first record for Blue Thumb. Bob Krasnow had brought in, guess who, Ben Sidron to produce Sylvester and the band. Maybe it was a weird choice. Ben had been baffled by Sylvester when they worked together on the A&M demos. But at least, back then, the mood in the studio had been exciting. Sylvester, when we did the demos, he was really easy to work with. You could see that this was a person who had sorted out a lot of personal stuff to get to where he was. He had a lot of confidence, and he was funny. He was uh, kind of down to earth, if you can imagine somebody as outrageous as a six-foot-four transvestite being down-to-earth. A year or two later, when we did the record, he had changed a little bit. He was not as easy to work with. He seemed somewhat darker, a little more anxious. When they had recorded the demos for A&M Records, Sidron had struggled with Sylvester's falsetto. That part hadn't changed. Part of what was driving me nuts is that he wasn't all that concerned with his pitch. He was more concerned with the... Uh, fabulousness of the presentation. By the end of, of the recording process, I was so depressed by how it had gone down. The, the Hyatt House, the Riot House, we called it, had a bar and a pool up on the roof. And I remember one night sitting up there and actually contemplating jumping off the roof. <laughs> by the end of that project, I wasn't particularly proud of what I was able to do. I felt that 
I had very little control over it, and I just didn't put my name on it. The album that Ben Sidron didn't want his name on, Sylvester and the Hot Band, was released in the spring of 1973. If you judge it by Ben Sidron's reaction, this album did not turn out so well. And it is truly all over the place, like a bar band taking requests. But Sylvester holds the album together with his signature vocals and larger-than-life persona. On the record cover, he wears a sequin top and red shiny gloves and smokes from a long black cigarette holder. This debut album didn't sell a whole lot of copies, and it didn't light up rock radio. But they went on the road to support it anyway. On one stretch of their tour, Sylvester and the Hot Band ended up in the South. Long-haired guys were still pretty rare there and controversial. A six-foot-two black man in drag? Heads explode. Kerry Hatch, the bass player, knew Sylvester and the Hot Band were out of their element in a big way. We're talking about the early 70s, and we were touring in the South. We were touring in areas where people had shotguns in their pickup trucks. Some of the places that we went, the responses that we got from the hillbillies and the yokels that lived there was pretty scary. One song that was part of their set was something Sylvester and the band had covered on the album, Southern Man by Neil Young. It's one of the rare folk rock songs to talk directly about anti-black racism in the South. Sylvester and the Hot Band performed the song to Southern crowds. Imagine the courage it took for a black man in drag to front a white rock band and sing a song about American white supremacy and racism. Stereotypical Southern sheriffs came to drive him out of town. Andrea Horn was a friend from L.A. And they told him that there's two things we don't like down here, boys, and you're both of them. And they drove him to the airport and made sure that he got on the plane to leave and not come back. Sylvester and the Hot Band went back into the studio that fall to record a second album called Bizarre. They were working with a different producer this time, but pretty much everything else was the same. The album featured a grab bag of covers and a couple of originals from bassist Carrie Hatch. And like the first, it sold very few copies. Now Sylvester and his band had two records that didn't work commercially, and everyone was frustrated. Bob Krasnow, an artist guy to the core, tried to jumpstart Sylvester creatively. Sax player Chris Mostert heard the story this way. Bob Krasnow had given him some money, like, I don't know, $2,500 to buy a piano so that he could write songs and Sylvester had spent the money on jewelry and stuff to sew on his clothes and, you know. And uh, that was fine until Bob Krasnow said he wanted to come over to Sylvester's house. And Sylvester decided, you know, that he couldn't have him come over to the house because there was no piano to show for the money that he'd given. So Sylvester, without telling anybody in the band, just took off, went to Paris. Bass player Kerry Hatch wasn't charmed by Sylvester's fabulous persona anymore. And Sylvester goes to Paris, we're certainly not going to sit around and wait for him to come back. I think at that point we've all kind of realized that this isn't working and, you know, this is a nutcase. And so we all just disbanded. Stephen Winter. <laughs> you get the sense that he was so nervous and insecure about actually making a real leap as himself into the world that he kind of undermines the situation in ways. 
He doesn't operate in this band as he would later on. He's still green, but it's um, diva green, which always comes from insecurity. Meanwhile, Bob Krasnow had signed the Pointer Sisters, elevating them from Sylvester's backup singers to stars in their own right, especially when their first single, Yes We Can Can, hit number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Their tight gospel harmonies glide over the groove of songwriter Alan Toussaint's New Orleans funk. I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know darn well. Maybe Sylvester was happy for them, but it's hard to imagine he didn't feel like he'd been left behind. And things had melted down at home, too. One night, Sylvester's live-in boyfriend, Michael Lyons, was at a club when a stranger came up to him, jingling a set of house keys. He asked how the guy got the keys, but it was pretty obvious. Sylvester and Michael had an understanding. Sleep with whomever you want, as long as it wasn't in the house they shared. Michael retaliated with a week-long sex marathon, or, in his words, an orgy blowout boy-girl suck fest. So that relationship was over. Now in his late 20s, Sylvester had no boyfriend and no band. Bob Krasnow canceled Sylvester's recording contract, and his backup singers had eclipsed him. He was adrift. He started thinking about plan B. Maybe this music thing wasn't going to work out. He considered applying to mortuary school. There's a song on the second hot band record called She. It's a cover of a country tune written by Graham Parsons and his guitarist in the Flying Burrito Brothers, Chris Etheridge. Graham Parsons' original was a sentimental look at a black woman who came from the land of cotton and slaved hard. You're hearing a white southerner observing the racial history of the South from a comfortable and even sentimental distance. In Sylvester's version, he isn't just an observer. He sings it from the inside out, ringing every last bit of soul on the recording. Here's Sylvester's sister, Bernadette. He had one song on his album that I remember he telling me he sung it for my grandmother. I heard him sing it in rehearsal and it brought tears in my eyes, you know, because it literally told the story of my grandmother's life. He was close with his mother, but while she had discouraged his childhood experiments with drag, his grandmother Juju had always given him more space to be himself. Martha Wash, who later sang with Sylvester on his biggest hits, was probably closest to him. As a child, when he wanted to play dress up or whatever, his grandmother, she did not trip on what he wanted to do. You know, she just let him go here. The hot band was about contrast. A black man in a dress, fronting a group of long-haired white guys, playing Neil Young and James Taylor. Cool, but weird. Maybe what Sylvester was starting to see was that he needed more people in his life, like Juju, who understood who he really was, and like Martha Wash said, would just let him go there. Next, on Sound Barrier. Sylvester is gone splat on the sidewalk as to what his life is going to be. Sylvester has been dropped by his record label, and his band has quit. But he's about to get the backup he needs. 
Sylvester came out on stage as the opening act, and I said, who the hell is this? A couple of years later, I'm in front of him auditioning to be a background singer. The first time they sat down and sang with the band, it was like the heavens opened up. But for a provocative artist, unwilling to compromise who he is, there are bound to be some challenges. You know, there were not a lot of recording contracts that were being given out to drag queens. We would just laugh because he was just going to do whatever he wanted to do. I do not want someone sitting around and looking like me in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt or whatever. I'm just not into that. That's next time on Sound Barrier. That sounds very good. Uh, but I'd like to do it again. Rolling for take two. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer, and Karkeet is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Adrian Lilly, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Shrikishan, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Elena Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.